right in the middle of 13b, getting into the heart of things, where the lines get really wide in the Gemara. Okay, let's make a little disclaimer before we start. The material is adult material. This is going to be some racy stuff. The Gemara now, on page 13b, begins an analysis of the words the yes ma'amar Mordechai Esther Ose. In the Megillah, chapter 2, verse 20, it says, and we learned about this previously, that Esther would not tell anybody where she was from. She wouldn't talk about her background. She wouldn't talk about her nation. Just as Mordechai had instructed her. In Hebrew, Ka'asher, Tziva, Aleha, Mordechai. As Mordechai had instructed her. And then the verse says, the S Ma'amar, Mordechai, the word Ma'amar comes from the word Omar, the saying of Mordechai, Esther Ose, the saying of Mordechai, Esther does. So what we're going to talk about today is not simple pshat. It's not simple pshat. It's not just a simple, straightforward meaning. In fact, if, if you take a look in the Targum, and I'm soon going to share with you what the Targum says, you'll see that the Targum has a very different way of explaining what we're about to talk about. This is in the level of drush, of homily, of biblical ecstasis, of understanding the deeper meaning behind the most literal interpretation. But it's all Torah Samus. It's all the Torah of truth. And so, the question in the Gemara is not spoken out. The Gemara just simply transcribes the four words of the Megillah. The S Ma'ama Mordechai and the saying of Mordechai, Esther Osa. Five words. The Gemara doesn't explain it. The Gemara doesn't say what the diuk, what the exact analysis is, what the issue over here is. This we're supposed to be able to understand and figure out by ourselves. Clearly, there's something about this verse which is begging for an explanation. So the Megillah quotes it. And he says, this verse that begs for an explanation, here is the tradition that we received with regard to it. Now, what, why, why actually is it begging for an explanation? So there's three possibilities here. One possibility is that it says earlier in the verse that Esther wasn't telling anybody where she was from. And the Torah says, I mean, the Megillah says, Kasher tziva oleha Mordechai, as Mordechai had instructed her. So it already says, as Mordechai had instructed her. So it already says, as Mordechai had instructed her, what is the meaning of the last five words of this verse where it says, V'es, and, because that's what V'es is, and, Maimer Mordechai Esther Osa, the saying of Mordechai, Esther is doing. You already said that. It's got to be like something else, something other than what it says in the first half of the verse. So this is the most likely understanding of the issue that's raised. Another possibility is the fact that it doesn't say ve'es tzivui, the command, the instruction. It says ma'amar, the saying. There's a big difference between a saying and an instruction. A person can have many sayings and you can either listen or not. Even if the person's a great teacher and you respect them very much, they said, so-and-so said. But it's very different if so-and-so instructed. So here we have an emphasis on Mordechai having instructed Esther something, and he did tell her. He said, don't tell anybody. No matter what happens, don't tell anybody where you're from. 
That was an instruction. That wasn't just a saying. And if it's speaking about, in this Pasuk, Esther listening to Mordechai's instructions, it should say listening to his instructions. It shouldn't talk about Ma'amar Mordechai, the saying of Mordechai. So these are some of the reasons that there seems to be something out of sort here. Something, something out of sort. There's, there's a seeming redundancy in the Pasuk. There's a, the, the Pasuk seems to be indicating something else. The es ma'ama Mordechai, as if ma'ama Mordechai is different than Sibu Mordechai. The fact that it used the word ma'ama. So the Gemara says, Amr Rabbi Yirmiya, Rabbi Yirmiya said, Shehoise mare damnido lechachamim. That she would show the stains of menstrual blood to the sages. Ka'asher hoisa ba'omno itai, just as when Esther was living, so to speak, in trust with Mordechai, or as he had raised her. So what does this mean? Let me give you a little bit of background just so you understand what's going on here. There are many mitzvahs in the Torah, and many of the mitzvahs in the Torah require tremendous effort to actually keep them. There's a mitzvah that's called keeping kosher. There are nowhere is there a mitzvah that tells you the details of keeping kosher. There are not thousands, there are tens of thousands of details in the mitzvah of keeping kosher. There are half a dozen mitzvahs that are associated with keeping kosher. You should, you should eat these kind of animals, you shouldn't eat those kind of animals. You're not going to have thousands of mitzvahs, thousands of details. There's a mitzvah in the Torah that God governs the intimacy of a married couple. Intimacy outside of marriage is just plain wrong. Intimacy was never meant to be experienced outside of marriage. This is part of the glue that Hashem destined to keep a marriage together. So intimacy within marriage is also not always good. There's times when it's appropriate and times when it's not. A simple example is the fact that tomorrow night or Friday night, we'll all sit down at the Shabbos table and we'll have two big challahs on the table. And that's great. That's great. You should eat your challah, dip it in salt. Make a bracha, pass it around. And so it's great, it's wonderful. And so it will be week after week. We'll go through this month and next month. But in a few months from now, in just a little bit over two and a half months from now, there will come a night when everybody sits down at the table. And if there's challah on that table, it's worse than having a giant roasted pork with an apple in his mouth. It's like you can't even, that's like forget about it. That's the horrible, terrible thing. Say, I don't understand. Last week it was a mitzvah, and next week's going to be a mitzvah. And now it's a sin? Yeah. There's times when it's permissible, and times when it's not permitted. What is chametz? We know what chametz is. Some things we're not so sure if they're chametz or not. What do you do with that? Eh? Hands off. It's called chametz noksha. Chametz, which is hardened, didn't fully ferment. And we have many halachas about what we can use on Pesach, on Passover, and what we cannot use on Passover. But you understand that from a Torah perspective, the very same challah, that's perfectly fine. In fact, is a mitzvah, and it's a good thing. It's a celebration of Shabbat and everything holy. On one Friday night, on a different Friday night, it could be the most heinous of sins. So, really and truly, people say intimacy is a bad thing. Avoid it. It's terrible. That's what certain faith systems and cultures believe. Judaism rejects that entirely. In fact, the notion of holy intimacy is the highest level of, of Kedusha, highest level of closeness to Hashem. In fact, the Medrash talks the sanctuary, the house that God asked us to build for him, as we learned a little while ago, right? God was living, he was everywhere, but he wasn't living anywhere. He didn't have an address. Hashem was here, Hashem was there, Hashem was everywhere, no address. And then he came, he said, make me a house. What's going to be the address, God? We're not going to have an address in the beginning. It's going to be a mobile home. And then 
And then we're going to settle down. Then we're going to have an address. So first God made a mobile home. And after the mobile home, he had an address. But that was a temporary address. Shiloh. Well, before we went to Shiloh, first we went to Givon. And that was like a, just a 14-year mm -hmm. temporary in between. Then we went to a pretty permanent address. You know, 365 years, that's pretty good. 369 years, that's, that's a nice, nice duration of time. And then God decided we're going to move now. We're going to move. So that house got destroyed. And then there was years in between. And finally, God's permanent address for posterity is Temple Mount Jerusalem. Permanent address. Okay. So in this business of what we call the proverbial notion of building God a house, there's a schematic. There's a holy of holies. There's a holy. There's a courtyard. And this is supposed to be an idea that we can literally export from the Mishkan or Migdash and import into our lives. Our homes are supposed to be built in the image of a Mishkan. And where is the Holy of Holy in the Jew's home? In his bedroom. That's the Holy of Holy. And by the way, the Holy of Holies is a very special place. And it's very holy. And the holiest thing the Kohen Gadol ever does on the holiest day of the year, he's the holiest Jew, he goes past that curtain and it's very special. But if he goes there another time, he's actually going to be violating the Torah. In fact, God says he forfeits his life. In fact, if he goes one time extra on Yom Kippur, that's also a problem. He violates the sin. So just because something is holy, it has to be holy in its proper context. So intimacy, when it is experienced from under the ages of marriage, by keeping the mitzvah of Taras HaMashpacha, the mitzvah of family purity, the holiest of the holy. It's amazing. It's wonderful. However, chas v'shalom, if intimacy is experienced outside the ages of marriage, God forbid, or if intimacy is experienced outside the notion of mikvah, then it becomes a big sin. It's in fact a very, very severe sin. So like in Chavat Sam Pesach. So the question now is, how does this work? Now this is not going to be a detailed class of Hilchus Nida, but I have to give you a little something to be able to appreciate what we just said over here, especially because there's three opinions of how we understand these words. At least three opinions. So the way it goes is, a simple uh, overview, like an overarching review, is that during the period of menstruation, husband and wife separate. Okay? For simplicity's sake, I'm just going to tell you how it's observed today. So there's five days of separation. That's called the period of menstruation. After that period of menstruation, after five days comes to an end, then the woman has to check herself to make sure that all menstrual blood has stopped, the flow has stopped, and then they have to count seven clean days. And at the conclusion of seven clean days, immersion takes place in the mikvah. So now comes the question like this. Suppose that a woman checked herself and, you know, it wasn't 100% clean, but that doesn't mean it was blood. There's other, other possible body fluids. So this is, a, this is a big deal. This is a question. Or suppose there's a woman's stains. So the question is, is that dam nida or not? What do you do? So there are rabbis who are specially trained to identify what is or is not a kosher color. So this color, not an issue. This color is a problem. A rabbi who's a Kohen cannot go to the cemetery. He doesn't really officiate funerals. So how could he not officiate funerals? He's a rabbi. He's a Kohen. He's a Kohen. And once upon a time, most rabbis are Kohen. All right. So it's kind of weird. You go to a funeral, and the rabbi's officiating from the box outside the room like a voice from outer space. It's weird, granted. And he doesn't go to the cemetery at all. What do you want? He's got limitations. I'm not a Kohen. Unfortunately, I do lots of funerals. But I have a different limitation. God decided to make me colorblind, which means to me, greens and grays and browns and reds, not all of it, but certain shades of it are all the same to me. And I, I don't, I'm not sure what's tan and what's brown, what's green and what's gray, what it is. That's a Yerusha. That's a wonderful legacy I got from my maternal Zaidi. Because you're 
the female is the carrier and the males get it. <laughs> so, so my Zaydi was colorblind and he was a very prominent rabbi and this is one part of the rabbinate he couldn't do. And I remember discussing this with him and he said to me, there was rabbis in the Gemara who couldn't do it. What are you going to do? That's what, God didn't give you color. That's not one of his gifts to you. You know, I have like artistic talent and I was like a, a boy. My, my, my parents bought me oil paints. I think I was 12 years old and nobody really knew I was colorblind yet. And, and I was like, painting purple mountains. And I thought they looked really good. And everybody's laughing at me. I thought, what's so funny? Said, that's purple, and mountains aren't purple. I'm like, that's really nice, like a dark gray. And I'm like, no, no, it's, that's... Anyway, everybody was started laughing so hard that I put away my oil paint, and I never painted again. <laughs> I drew only black and white <laughs> from then on. Only black and white, and that's, that's that made life easier for me. Till today, I have three boxes of socks. I have blue socks and one shoe box that says blue. I have gray socks that says gray. And I have black socks, and that's it. Because in the morning, I'm in a rush, I just look in the box. That's it. See? <laughs> Otherwise, it's very strange things happen. For me, white shirts, the simplest thing. At a very young age, I said, I wear only white shirts. Why? Simple. I don't have to match anything. So rabbis who do have the gift of color, who are practicing, will get trained to be able to identify which of the five colors is problematic, and which is not. And this is a very, very difficult thing. And, and you, have to know your, you have to know your stuff. You have to, you have to know the halachas, but you also have to have hands-on training uh, going through hundreds, if not thousands, of different s- colors and, and, and samples until the rabbi can tell you, yeah, you chose right. You, all the, you, know, you put the right colors in the right place. You have the ability to do this on your own. So Esther has a problem now. And, and, and I want to add one more detail to this. This is really important. In the time of the Gemara, the rabbis had a much, much better ability, much higher acuity of being able to distinguish between one shade of red and another. In today's day and age, we, don't, we can't say that. We don't have that, that ability. So if it's red, that's it. It's red. It's not, it's not going to be an option. One of the five colors, even if it's remotely one of those colors, the rabbis going to have to say that it's no good. But once upon a time, in the time of the Gemara, the rabbis had just tremendous, tremendous ability to look at a color, a special way, and they were able to, to identify. So much so that there's a very interesting story, and this has nothing to do with what we're learning, but it kind of does. Uh, in the time of the Alter Rebbe, there were two best friends who got married at the same time. And, and uh, their marriages are very different. So one was very happily married, and one that was in a terrible marriage. They couldn't get along. They were bickering and fighting, and it was terrible. And the friend who had a bad marriage was very jealous of her friend who was having a very good marriage. And she used to sneak into her friend's house and she used to stain her friend's underwear so she would have problems, marital issues. And it was like the strangest thing. She would find like, find like red stains all over the place. Anyway, al Rebbe was a very young man and just starting his career, if you will, as a rabbi. And they brought it to the al Rebbe and the al Rebbe looked at it and he said, look, from the time of the Gemara already, we don't have the ability to distinguish colors. It's, it's clearly it's blood, it's red. The Alter Rebbe said, I'm a, nearly 100% sure that this is blood that's from a bird, not from a human. And that she was taking pigeons, killing pigeons and doing this. And the Alter Rebbe knew it. And then they, they investigated and they found out. And obviously this friend was you know, sent on a long trip. Uh, they, never, they never talked again, these friends. And the situation was saved, but people marveled that the Alter Rebbe said he can't paskin because we don't have the ability today. But he said... I'm pretty sure this red is. And he said it's, it's from a bird. It's not you. Which is whatever. Al-Tarebbe. Go and Hagainim, the genius among the geniuses, they said if the Al-Tarebbe was in the time of the Gemara, he would also have been a prominent figure.
So anyway, this is what this is this is what the Gemara is talking about. I, I needed to give you this little background because otherwise you wouldn't know what's going on here. And the thing goes like this: if the stains, whether it's stains on undergarments or stains on what's called an aid bedika, which is a piece of cloth that's used, if the stains are a certain color, so then it throws off the counting of the seven clean days, and it will tell you when you go to the mikveh when you don't go to the mikveh. And anybody who's living a Torah observant life, this is a part of life that in the time after five days and a separation before the seven clean days, there are times when it won't be seven days, it'll be eight days, it'll be nine days, it'll be ten days, and there's shilas that have to come to a rav. Rav's come to a rav, rav have to look at it. It's not, a, it's not an embarrassing thing, it's not different than a doctor. It's a professional thing. Rabbi looks at it, a lot of rabbis have like dropped, little drop boxes outside their house. People leave it with a phone number, he doesn't know who he's calling. Rabbi will look at it, and he'll call back the number and say, kosher or not kosher. Or sometimes he'll just text people, and that's it. Okay. So Esther can't paskin for herself. And anyway, a person can't paskin for themselves anyway. So Esther is clearly keeping the mitzvah of Tarsa Meshpacha. She's keeping the mitzvah of Nida. And the Gemara says, Rabbi Yirmiya says, that what does it mean, What does it mean, the saying of Mardachai? That she was continuing to check her stains with the Chachamim. Just as when she was living with him. So if you look at the Targum, the Targum says that Esther was keeping all the kinds of things that a person has to keep to live a kosher life. It says that Esther is Yos Maima Mordechai Havas Esther Avdas. Esther was keeping the sayings of Mordechai. Havas Shabaya Umaydaya Havinatras. She was keeping Shabbat and Yom Tov. Beyoyma Rechuka Havimizarta. This probably does talk about Nida. Times she should be away, she would stay away. Tavshilin, Vachamra, the Amamin, the idea of what's called Bishul Akum and Yayin Nesach. So she would avoid wine that you're not supposed to eat, which is rabbinic limitations on kashras and things that shouldn't be cooked. But that were cooked by that weren't cooked by under Jewish supervision by a Jew. She would she would have a tamaya, she wouldn't eat them. Vachol Pikudaya Anything like a Jewish woman would have to do, any mitzvah a Jewish woman would have to do, she was She was keeping it. And she had like questions sometimes. So why is it not Mordechai's mitzvah? It's God's mitzvah. So the thing is, Esther had to have, she had shyless. What do I do in this situation? What do I do in that situation? Esther was always walking a, a tightrope. And remember, she couldn't let anybody know she's Jewish. So she always had to give a song and dance and tell everybody she's vegetarian and today she doesn't eat potatoes and tomorrow she's not eating uh, rice. She always had to have a different reason because something else went wrong. So she asked Mordechai, constantly sending Shilas, what do we do in this case? What do we do in that case? How do we get around this? And, and Mordechai was giving her halachic rulings. And this was just the way just like when Esther was being raised by Mordechai, she lived in a Torah-observant home and she asked her, Mordechai's her uncle, or cousin, she asked her cousin questions and Shilas. So she asked Shilas now also. That's a simple pshat. That's the pshat. Now, whether or not this Gemara is talking about this simple pshat is a, is a big question. If you read the words of Rabbi Yirmiya simply, he says, She would be showing what's called in Hebrew a kesem, these stains to the chachamim, just like when she was together with him. So, really and truly, what does this mean? So there are a number of, of different opinions about this. Some op- one, one opinion is that Esther was keeping all of the mitzvahs. All the mitzvahs. So why do we talk about this mitzvah then? If she's keeping all the mitzvahs, which is actually what the Targum says, 
Hagam includes this mitzvah also. But why does the Gemara, why does Rabbi Yirmiya say that she was keeping this mitzvah? So one explanation is because this mitzvah was the hardest one of all to keep. How is she going to get her message to the Chachamim? How is she going to be sending garments, undergarments to Chachamim and getting them back? I mean, this, is like a, this has got to be one of the hardest of all. So the fact that Esther was keeping this one, you could only imagine she was keeping all the other ones. And that this, according to this opinion, the meaning here simply is that Esther was keeping all of the mitzvahs. And, and why is it Maimah Mardchai? Because it was according to the Psak of Mardchai. Now, that, that's not really the straight read of the Gemara. <laughs> the Gemara says she was keeping the mitzvah of Nida. And even if you are to say that she was keeping all the mitzvahs, and the Gemara talks or highlights this one because it was the most difficult one to possibly keep or get a ruling on, why would she need a ruling on this? She's not living with a Jew. She's not going to the mikveh. So what's, what's going on over here? So the Manus HaLevi is written by the Alkabats, the author of the Lachododi. He says being Medayik and Rashi, and I'll soon show you the Diyak and Rashi when we get to the next piece of Gemara. He says, by looking at Rashi carefully, you can come up with a compelling case that even if Esther is forced to live with a non-Jewish man, which is technically prohibited by the Torah, nonetheless, Esther would still go to the mikveh. Why? Because it is a sin for a woman to be with a man if she didn't go to the mikveh. It's not only the man's sin, it will be the woman's sin. So therefore, Esther said, if I'm going to be a Rachashverish, I don't want to do another Aveda. Esther was about trying to minimize the transgressions. She had no choice. wasn't an option. The last wife who didn't listen was swinging from the gallows very quickly. Esther knew that if she would say anything to Rachashverish, she'd be killed on the spot. So as such, she had no choice. She, would, she had to submit. But it but doesn't mean Esther could minimize the amount of Avedas that she performed. So one of the ways of limiting the Aveda was at least when she would be with him, she would have been to Mikveh already. Is the Avera her own Avera or the passage of an Avera onto the man? Well, Achashverosh cannot have an, an Avera because you have to be Jewish to have an Avera. An av- so. th- th- these are mitzvahs that are binding on Jewish men. These are part of the 365 prohibitions in the Torah. These are not prohibitions for a Gentile. It's not any different than eating pork. Okay. okay. So the, the point here is, and the Minchas Chinuch says this clearly, he paskins this in something called Kaimitz HaMincha. Minchas Chinuch has uh, writings that he wrote after he finished writing and publishing the Minchas Chinuch. He, he, he kept writing. He kept coming. And he, he demonstrates in a very, very clear proof that if a woman, even if a woman be married to a Gentile, she should still go to the mikveh. In other words, Going to the mikveh makes things at least better. At least you're not violating this aveira. You might be violating other sins, but this this sin you're not violating. I had a very interesting shaila once. Very interesting shaila. Person uh, got married, and at the time, you know, she was Jewish. Her husband was Jewish. Everything's fine. At a certain point, she began to suspect that maybe her husband's mother wasn't halachically Jewish certain point in the marriage she began to suspect this and I don't know if she ever came to a resolution about it but she became very suspectful and very concerned and she came with me to Ashila. so am I allowed to go to the mikveh is it pointing going to the mikveh and it was, it was like I never had such a Shiloh this is like a really weird Shiloh like it's an unusual Shiloh and I sat there with Rabbi Shachat 
many years ago, and I went through this, I went through this, this sugya, right? And, and remember very clearly, Minchas Chinuch says that she still, she has to go to mikvah regardless. She wasn't, she didn't ask her to get divorced. It wasn't an option. It wasn't an option. And I can't judge anybody. <laughs> she wanted to leave her husband. And she, and she couldn't figure out, she couldn't get to the bottom of this. So the question was, she go to mikvah, she go without a bracha. Now, for Shachat Pasi, she go with a bracha also. Why? Because the Mechaz Chinuch says clearly, even, even, even for her, it's, it's an Aveda for him and for her. It's not just an Aveda for the man, it would be an Aveda for the woman also. So here, Esther would want to minimize, and this is the Alkabats, at the time I didn't know the Alkabat says this, I just saw it in the Mechaz But the only way to understand the Alkabats, which is based on Rashi, the Manasalevi says, is based on the same idea that the Mechaz Chinuch says. Is that the others say it also, the other, the other Achernim also say this. So therefore, there's a very nuanced thing where Esther was actually trying to weigh situations. How do I make the least amount of Avedis in a situation? Like, I can never tell somebody, um, come to Shul on Shabbos, get somebody to drive you who's not Jewish. I can't tell them that. I can't, how can I tell them? Don't come to Shul. <laughs> I can't tell them that. However, however, if somebody would say to me, Rabbi, I'm coming to Shul. I could say to them, you know what? At least don't drive yourself. It's a much bigger sin, a much, much bigger sin when you drive yourself. When you drive yourself, it's mamish. You're violating Shabbos fully. If a Gentile is driving, it's still, it's still not right. It's not halakhli okay, but it's by far minimized. So there is an issue of minimizing sins. No question about it. There was a story that there was a, there was a couple who they were married and she was Jewish and he wasn't or the other way around. And, and uh, the one, the spouse who wasn't Jewish decided they would look into becoming Jewish and they were getting very serious about it. And at a certain point, there wasn't, they were not ready to separate yet. They were just, you know, still making baby steps. And they, they came to the Bazal Mashim and the Rav of Lubavitch, in the past generation, and they asked him, what should we do? And he said without a heartbeat, go to the mikveh. You should, go to, you should keep mikveh. So they said to the Bazal Mashim, you keep mikveh, like, it's, it's not a normal... Jewish couple, so to speak. The Zalman Shimon said, if they keep in mikveh at least half a month, they're not doing an Aveda. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> he says that, That's a backdoor entrance. It's a back, the backdoor entrance is the entrance. And in other words, there is sometimes, when we look at situations, say, how do I minimize sins? And I'll give you an example of where we, where we do this, not bidiyah, but l'chatchila. And that is, if you know that you might have to go to the hospital on Shabbos, how would that be? somebody's expecting. And you don't have to go into labor on Shabbos. So you know you're going to have to go. It's not a question. So what should you do? You should make the appropriate preparations. Namely, you should organize to have a ride prior to Shabbos, if possible. Pack things prior to Shabbos. There, there are ways to do it. Right? Before the days of Uber, you would prepare the money sticking out of the suitcase. So, here's, <laughs> so you don't have to give the money. And there's a famous story. A woman went into labor. And her husband called the car service. And he said, do not send a Jewish driver. Don't send a Jewish driver. And he kept saying it. Right? <laughs> so the car driver picks up the hair. You remember the old days in the car service? Here's on the walkie-talkie. Did you pick up those anti-Semites yet? <laughs> when the, the question that I when my eldest son, Zevi, was born, so I knew what I had to do. And there's no Uber those days. So I, I dialed the phone with my left hand and I called the car service. My mazel, they sent a Jewish guy. <laughs> I found it on the way as we were driving. 
So I told the guy, listen, I want you to know you're not violating Shabbos now. What you're doing now is 100% permissible. He's like, would you take care of your wife and leave me alone? Just stop, stop bothering me. <laughs> the question is, whether she is passing by doing the Avera, if she's doing the Avera on his behalf. She's not doing it on anybody's behalf. She's not doing it on anybody's behalf. She should not be in an intimate situation, period, obviously. Yeah. But here, where she had no choice, and she was a passive participant, at least by going to mikveh, she minimized the situation. So the Maharsha, he argues with this. He argues with, with, with Manas Alevi, and presumably you could say he argues with Rashi. And he says... It's ridiculous. We know that Achashverosh will soon see in the Gemara. He was there every night. He didn't do it. He didn't take any days off. So what would be the point? And therefore the Marsha says that she was not going to mikveh for, for Achashverosh. She was going to mikveh for another reason, as you're soon going to see. Let's see, what the, see the next piece of Gemara. If you think this is crazy, wait till you see what come, what's coming. <laughs> now, it's really going to get interesting after this. So this is the question. The question was, was Esther trying to minimize the, tr the transgressions or was in fact there is something else going on over here? So far, everybody's following? It makes sense? Okay, let's go on now. The Gemara goes further and says like this. The Gemara says, Amar Rabba bar Lema. Rabba, the son of Lema, and according to one opinion, is this is Mishmei de Rav, according to one version, in the name of Rav. So this is not the teaching of Rabbi Yirmiya. And that's why, from Rashi's perspective, it's a different teaching. It's not a continuation. You could mistakenly think that it's one continuation. It's not. It's a separate teaching. The first teaching was that Esther was busy showing her maras. She was showing the stains and trying to get a ruling. Fine. Next teaching is that Rabbi Barlema said in the name of Rav, She left Achashverosh's lap, so to speak, or his bed, and she would go immerse in the mikveh, and she would go back to her husband, who was Mordechai. Like you heard. Talk about a double agent. Talk about a double life. In other words, in other words, Esther was not, was not in the palace because she wanted to be there. She hoped and prayed she would lose the contest. To her unfortunate chagrin, she won, wins the contest. She's in this situation now. But she was always compelled and forced. And so... Her hope and prayer was, I'm going to get out of the situation someday. And I'm going to go back to living a normal life with my husband. She was not an adulterous chas v'shalom. She didn't want to do this. She's being forced. So Esther would continue to maintain her conjugal relationship with her husband, Mordechai. When does this end? Much later in the Megillah, when Mordechai says, you need to go to Achashverosh. Esther says, if I go, then I submitted. Then I wasn't forced. If he called me, I had no choice. If I go, then I'm finished. I can never go back to Mordechai. That was the point that Esther knew she was sacrificing everything. She not only sacrificed her, her, her material welfare, she sacrificed even if she would survive her spiritual welfare. And she never, ever was able to return to the Jewish people after. From that point that Esther made that decision, she followed the faithful advice of Mordechai because there was no choice under the circumstances. She could never go back to Mordechai again. She could never leave the palace. And Esther lived a very lonely life. The rest of her life she lived in the palace. So she would actually go to Mordechai. And the question, of course, there are many questions they asked. Vertesis asked a question like, if there would be a pregnancy, who knows where the pregnancy would come from? And they maintain that Esther used the birth control methods of antiquity, what, what you would call today you know, like, like foam or a block or whatever it was, 
And so she didn't want to get pregnant from Achashverosh. And she had still hoped she'd get pregnant from Mordechai. And then once she had gone and submitted on her own volition, can never go back to Mordechai, then she stopped using birth control and she did have a baby. And his name is Darius, Darius II. And Darius II, who was actually a Jew, halakhically, but didn't recognize himself as a Jew, he was the Persian ruler. And he was the one who was instrumental in the building of the second base of Migdash. That was the son of Esther. But that only takes place later on. In other words, according to Rabbi Barlema, Kasher Bahamna Ba'amna Ita means that she never turned her back on Mordechai. She remained the loyal wife of Mordechai. Even when she was with Achashverosh. She was still following Mordechai's rules. She was playing by Mordechai's playbook. Now this is like terrifying because if she gets found out, her and Mordechai are dead on the spot. And who knows how many other people are going to get killed in the, in, in, in the rage. But that she elected to live this secretive, double life and literally would sneak out of the palace and return home. So Rashi says something very interesting here. It says she was toivelis. It says she would immerse. So the question is, why was she immersing? Was she immersing? Living with Achashverosh doesn't make her ritually impure. Why was she immersing? Huh? Bittel? Yeah, but, but like, wh- for what? So Rashi says, Toivelis here is not for the purpose of ritual purity, but rather machmas nekias. To be clean. Taking a bath. Taking a bath. That's what he says, taking a bath. It shouldn't, Mordechai shouldn't find it repugnant. It's coming from Achashverosh. Took a bath in between. So from Rashi's words, this is what the Al-Kabat zeroes in on. Al-Kabat says, look at that. Manas Levi says, when, when she was Tevelas, she wasn't Tevelas for, for, for Mordechai special. Marsha says, she was Tevelas for Mordechai. That's why she sent the, 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 gar- the garments to be looked at and the stains, and she was Tevelas for Mordechai. But Rashi clearly doesn't say that. So Marsha argues on Rashi. But Rashi, the Manas Levi says, Rashi clearly says, Machmas Nikias. Of course, then the question becomes, why does it say tevelas? Tevelas means immersing, usually in a mikveh. It should say rechetzas. It should say she used to wash herself. And so the comment, there are commentaries, very interesting commentaries on Rashi, where they suggest that just like a person who immerses at the time of conversion goes into the mikveh and comes at a new person, so there's this thing that Esther was in an impure situation. And because she was in this impure situation, the Sifzichon say, that's why she would go to mikvah. She wouldn't just take a bath. She actually would immerse. She actually would immerse. And there's a, a, a Shail Setruvus written by a great rabbi in the 19th century called the Shvus Yankiv. And the Shail Setruvus Shvus Yankiv, he gave instructions based on this Rashi for a woman who Nebuch was raped that before she should return to her normal husband, she'd go to the mikvah. And she went to mikvah based on this Rashi. Even though, you know, it was an awful situation or whatever, by, by, from a, a Gentile, it was a pogrom or something. He said, but you see from this Rashi that in order for, you were right, he said, bittel, this, um, this idea of nullifying, of cleansing oneself on a spiritual level, even though technically there's no issue of tevila out of, out of the Torah's requirement, there's no notion of ritual purity and impurity, nonetheless, that's, that used to happen. So, this is pretty racy stuff, but that was the story of Esther's double life. Rabbi, this, just to understand, the Mishnah Torah says we should live by the mitzvahs. Excellent question. It's an excellent question. The Teisvis asked this question um, on the Gemarim Subas that there are three sins for which a person is required to give the life. 
So, so how did Esther do this? So one of the answers is that Esther karka elam Esther was a passive participant, not an active participant. So we have to give you life not to choose to be an active participant. Mm-hmm. But Esther would just be there. And I guess Akashverosh found it very exciting. So she was passive. And because she was passive, she, so, so that, therefore she wasn't, she wasn't actively violating that commandment. The, the Zohar says that Esther was able to create this demonic uh, alter ego and she would slip out and slip the demonic ego in there. Like, I, 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 like that's like Zohar and it's holy stuff and I don't know what it means. And, and like, how do, how do you deal with the pshat on a simple level? I, I don't know how to reconcile the pshat because we have all the chalm are working and trying to understand pshat and <laughs> as Zohar says, it would never happen. Okay, I, I don't know how to reconcile that. But, but, but this, this is a big issue. And the biggest issue is that when Esther went ahead and willingly went to Akashverosh, that was a really big issue. And that's, we only, the only answer then is that it wasn't about Esther. It was about the, na- the nation of Israel. And so Esther did what's called an Aveda Lishma. She did something which is prohibited by the Torah, and she was commanded by Mordechai to do it. And Mordechai, under the circumstances, knew this was the right thing to do. We have a similar situation with a woman whose name was Yael, who seduced the general Sisra, mm-hmm. and then killed him and saved the Jewish people. And it says, Tevedech Minoshim Yael. Yael is considered to be a very righteous woman. Even though there's different opinions as to what exactly happened in that tent, it could have been more than chocolate chip cakes uh, and cookies, uh, cookies and milk. It could have been, but so this is this is heavy stuff, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I told you this is like wild gemara, <laughs> and that's the story of Esther being Ba'amna Now this explains the notion of Maima Mardchai of the saying of Mordechai. So it wasn't a command. The commands are God's commands. But here, in other words, she <coughs> remained loyal to Mordechai. That's the point here. Now, according to some opinions, they say that why would she send the, the uh, stains to the Chachamim? She could have sent it to Mordechai. So she couldn't send it to Mordechai because Mordechai was kind of, he's personally involved. So when you're personally involved, then you can't pass in halacha, just like somebody doesn't do surgery on their own relative. Can't be a judge if you're biased. Right. So therefore, Mordechai, that, that which this was for this, you would have to go to the other chachamim. Mm-hmm. According to other interpretations, only Mordechai had the expertise of the highest level, so she would go to Mordechai. But at any rate, the way we can understand this is that she did go to mikvah on a regular basis. There are other mafarshim that say it's true it says Achashverosh was there every night, but that was during the available times, like like during menstruation itself. I think most people wouldn't have intimacy. That's like that's just weird stuff. Like it's a it's so, so, so Esther didn't really have all the time and the proof is that Esther wasn't called for three months later on. So therefore maybe there was times when Achashverosh was uh, very excited, excited, excited and excitable and it couldn't be restrained. Maybe there was times Achashverosh really wasn't. So Esther in the meantime would make sure that whenever she was able to go to mikvah, she went to mikvah. She did the best she could. And therefore when it came to Mordechai, if, if she was pure, she was already pure. If she, and if she was impure, she wouldn't go to Mordechai. So she didn't have to go to mikveh to be pure. That she was doing already. She went to mikveh to make a separation between the time she was with the Hashverosh and the time she was with Mordechai. So why the checking? Why the checking? Yeah. If she went to the mikveh basically as a... a I'll tell you why the checking. A, as a quote-unquote cleansing. No, 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 no. The cleansing was for, Achash, for Mordechai because yeah, of Achashverosh. Yeah, but yeah. the mikvah she went for herself. She was keeping the nidah. She didn't want to be an over and over. She didn't want to do a sin. No, I know that. But according to Rashi here, it says that she That's a there. secondary immersion. 
It's a second immersion. And that's why I emphasize that the second Gemara, there's two pieces of Gemara here. There's two different teachings. Rabbi Yirmiya's teaching and Rabbi Abba Barlema's teaching are not the same teaching. The Gemara quotes them in succession. They're both expounding the same verse, but it's not the same teaching. It's very important to understand that. And you, I thought you were asking something else. Why would you care if it's a day sooner or a day later? Well, Esther wanted to be pure as soon as possible to be minimizing any possible Avedas as much as possible. You, you, you try to minimize. So just like there's something called Hutra, there's something called Duchuya. In Halacha, there are sometimes we say when there's, it's rescinded, no issue. And then sometimes we say it's, no, Halacha is cast aside, but only as little as possible, as little as necessary. So for example, if you have to call the, uh, make a phone call on Shabbos, how should you do it? With your left hand or with your right hand if you're a lefty. Why? Because then you're not doing it in a way of, uh, of the normative malacha. And therefore, you're minimizing your violation of Shabbos. If a person has to eat on Yom Kippur because they're sick, how should they eat? Don't sit down and have a full meal. You eat very, very small amounts and you wait a certain amount of time and you eat a very, very small amount. So at least you're not actively violating Yom Kippur. In other words, you're minimizing the situation. Here's a person who's eating on Yom Kippur. What's the difference? There is a difference. Same thing with Esther. Here's Esther sleeping with Lachashir. Okay, so she's minimizing things to the best of her ability. So now we move from the story of Esther's double life and we move into the story of Mordechai who gets thrust into a position he never asked for and ends up in the middle of an assassination. He's in the middle of foiling an assassination. There's an active plot against the king and he's stuck in the middle of this and so he saves the king's life. Esther repeats it later in, in Mordechai's name and because of this, the miracle of Purim unfolds long time later when the middle of the night Achashverosh can't sleep and he wants to be the records and he hears the story of Mordechai and he says what was done for him nothing was done for him and that's when everything begins to unravel. So the, the Gemara now tells us like this. The Gemara says which this is actually the next verse. We just expounded verse, verse 20 of chapter 2. This is verse 21. The Gemara says in those days and Mordechai was sitting in the king's courtyard, king's court. So in those days, Kotzaf, big son, Veseresh, big son, was angered. He was angered, big son and Seresh. And the Gemara goes on, and then the, 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 the Pasuk continues to talk about the fact that there were two officers of the king, and they were the people who were per- responsible for Ahasuerus' personal security, his guard detail, and they decided that they would assassinate the king. They were plotting an assassination attempt. So the Gemara says, Omi Rabbi Chiyah Barabba, Rabbi Chiyah Barabba said, Omar Rabbi Yechanan, Rabbi Yechanan said, what is going on over here? So what, do you, what, what is the question? Once again here, the Gemara does not explain the issue. The Gemara simply matter-of-factly states the Pasuk, and then right away comes to answer. Well, what is the question? What was the issue that had to be answered? So here, once again, we have a number of different ways of understanding what the issue is. The simplest way of understanding the question is, Bixon and Seresh, what were they trying to do? They were trying to assassinate the king. So what happened? So Mordechai found out about it. And because he found out about it, what happened? He foiled the assassination. Um, how did they feel about this? Were they, were they passionate? Were they angry? Were they passive? Were they depressed? 
I really don't care. It's not part of the story. Their emotions are irrelevant here. Whether they were angry or suicidal is not what's relevant here. What's relevant here, it would seem, is that people were plotting to assassinate the king. Mordechai found out and he passed on the information and saved the king's life. End of story. And yet, the Megillah chooses to tell us Kotsaf, that Bigson and Seresh were angered. And then, after we know that they were angered, they decided, they sought to send forth a hand, which is a euphemism, to assassinate King Achashverosh. Why are we talking about the emotional side of things? It's not relevant. So this is one straightforward understanding of the issue. This is the issue. Another way of understanding the issue, another possibility of the issue here is that the, the question becomes, if it's two people, namely Big Son and Seresh, so if it's two people and they got angry, what should it say? It should say they got angry. They got angry, how do you say it in Hebrew? Kotzfu. But it doesn't say Kotzfu. It says Kotzaf. That means only one got angry. So now it's really weird. So one guy got angry and the other one wanted to kill him. <laughs> what? You get angry, so I kill him? Like, what, what is, what's going on over here? Maybe it's a noun as opposed to a verb. Katzaf. Uh, it doesn't say Ketzef. It says Kotzaf. Ketzef is a noun. Kotzaf is a verb. Yeah. So maybe it's Ketzef Ber. It's not. It's not. It's Kotsaf. Ketsef Be. Kotsaf, not Ketsef. Ami, let me explain this to you very simply. If you will be in Shul and Purim, and the Balkara will say Kotsaf, instead of Kotsaf, you're not going to fulfill your mitzvah here in the Megillah. Why? Because you changed the meaning. Of course. So we know exactly what the meaning is supposed to be. This is a verb, not a noun. And it's, la- it's singular. Now, another possibility, says the Ion Yaakov, is the fact that it says, How did this end up going together? What was the connection between one and the other? And the, and the verse. A new idea. Why did these two ideas find themselves side by side? Clearly, there has to be some kind of relationship between Mordechai's assuming a position and their anger. There is. There is a connection. But the Gemara is asking, so what is it? So we have a variety of possibilities here, maybe all three possibilities. The bottom line is, this is a verse that's demanding elucidation. It's like, it's like a stomachache. It wants attention. It's a verse is saying, hello, could you look again, please? I'm trying to tell a story. Okay. So the Chamem said, here's the story that we were told that the verse is trying to convey to us. The story is, he said it in the name of Rabbi Yechna. That what happened here was, God made angry, angered. He angered the master over the servants. Why did he anger the master over the servants? To do the will of the righteous. So God made the master angry at the servants so that he could do the will of the righteous. Okay, this is a riddle. 
What's the answer to this riddle? Who is this? So now we have the king upset. Yeah, we're, all of a sudden now we're taking a riddle. Solve this riddle and then you'll be able to come back and understand this. The riddle is, God made the master angry at the servants to do the will of the tzaddik. Hmm. Biblical riddle. Who am I? So the answer is, Umanoi, who is that tzaddik? The Gemara goes, okay, who is the tzaddik? Once you tell me who the tzaddik is, I'll figure out who the master was and who the servants were. Umanoi, what's the answer to the riddle? Yosef. Because it says, with regard to Yosef, who was imprisoned by the Potiphar for a framed situation. Yosef was framed by this lunatic, desperate housewife of Egypt of antiquity. Right? Potiphar's wife had him thrown into prison and Yosef is framed over there and languishing there. And it says that the servant, namely the baker, said to the Pharaoh when he had a dream and he was really unhappy and nobody could interpret it, he said, you know, I don't want to bring this up at this point, but there was a time that the Pharaoh got really angry at us. He put me in prison. And there, there was a fool, a Hebrew. But you know, somehow he had a way of interpreting dreams. And you know what happened? The king said, why are you withholding that information from me? You have a person who can interpret it. Bring him out immediately. So they took Yosef and they cleaned him up and they gave him a nice set of clothes, they gave him a haircut and he was presented before the king. And of course, the king began to tell his dream. Yosef said, he said, I heard you can uh, interpret dreams. Yosef said, God interprets dreams, but let me hear. And Yosef interprets the dream and he says, the dream's message is that I'm supposed to give you advice. The dream is telling you what to do. And the Pharaoh is blown away. He said, not only he interprets, he understood the dream, the message. This, you're never going to find a wiser person. He is the one who's going to carry out the dream's message. And Yosef is appointed viceroy. Second most powerful man in the world. And the longest serving Jewish monarch, the longest serving Jewish king, Yosef was the viceroy or second in command in the most powerful country, certainly at least in what we would call the foreign or the western world, for 80 years. And it all happened on a dime, in one afternoon. Now, how did that happen? It happened because God made some ser- a master angry at the servants. Do you understand what's going on here? So, now, let's take a look at Rashi. Rashi says, Odin alavodov. Rashi says, let me give you a sneak preview. Let me tell you where this riddle's going. This is, The Pharaoh flew into a rage at his two officers. And who were his two officers? The butler and the baker. So the Eitz Yosef says like this. Let's say what's predictable to get thrown into prison with no expiration date because something ended up in the dough is borderline ridiculous. That makes no sense. Or because a fly ended up in the goblet? Really? You go to jail for that? I mean, maybe get demoted. Maybe get thrown out of your position. Who, who sends him to jail for that? And not everybody came out alive from this jail. So he says, the HCSF says, this whole thing actually made no sense. 
Now Rashi, in his commentary on Chumash, tells us that the reason that this happened was because everybody was talking about Yosef. He was the top story. He was the trending story of the day. All the talk shows were talking about him. He was the front page of all the tabloids, and everybody was laughing at Yosef. So Hashem said, you're laughing at Yosef? I'll give you your own salacious stories to talk about. And then the next day, who was on the tabloids? Who was the trending news? The two servants of Pharaoh. The Pharaoh. The story. The palace. The palace corruption. The palace collapse. So everybody forgot about Yosef. And of course that is so. But here, that's in the immediate. That's in the short term. That's to a, a more, um, alleviate or immorulate this short term problem. But the long term issue is, where is this going? Ah, this Hashem arranged. This Hashem arranged so that Yosef would later interpret their dreams. And because he would interpret their dreams, he in turn, he would be brought to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams, and the rest, as they say, is history. So the question becomes, why did they both have to go to jail, and why did they both have to have dreams? And the answer is really very simple. The answer is, the Meshachachma says this, he says, if the butler the wine purveyor were to have a dream and he's in a bad mood and Yosef says yeah you're going to be leaving prison and he leaves prison it really doesn't mean anything so Yosef was a kid he was being iced him he said I had a bad dream he said yeah it's going to be good but here there was a, somebody else who had a dream at the same time and Yosef did not just say it's going to be good he said oh you're in trouble mister yeah those three days your head's going to be lifted off your head in three days and it was exactly as Yosef said so there was a very compelling narrative here. The, the butler said, Look, Pharaoh, I mean, it was me and the baker guy. And he had one dream and I had another dream. And Yosef interpreted both our dreams to the T. The baker is no longer here. Yosef predicted that. And here I am. And Yosef predicted that. And the Pharaoh said, wow, that's amazing. This kid's got talent. Bring him to the throne room. So that's why we had this whole story. Now the interesting thing is that the Gemara sees this merely as a forerunner or that's part one of the story. That's, that's the ke- story of Ketzef number one. There's a sequel to the Ketzef. There's the, the anger, anger management in Egypt and then there's the sequel, anger management in Persia. But here, it's not the master on the servants, it's the servants against their master. And as the Mepharshim point out, that's even more unnatural because usually the people that kings surround themselves with are the most loyal of all. And that they should get angry and then decide to assassinate the king? These are not his enemies. These are his best friends. These are people he trusted with his very life. So this was totally unnatural. And so the Gemara continues, Avodim al Servants against their master. In order to make a miracle for the tzaddik. So you'll notice the first time it says, tzaddik, the will of the tzaddik. And the second time it says to make a nest for the tzaddik. But the answer is really very simple. The Eitzhiasif the says, think about it. He says, the, 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 uh, well, f- 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 first of all, the, the, the miracle is, like I, like I said, that, that servants got angry. That's, that doesn't make any sense. And especially the Manus Halevi points out that Achashverosh did all kinds of things to curry favor with everybody because everybody was angry about Vashti. 
You know, she was like Diana. Everybody loved her. She was like very popular. So, so the Achshverosh on Avra's way, he gave, he alleviated taxes and he gave tax breaks all over the place. Everybody loved him, and he gave it these gifts everywhere, especially in Shushan, the people close by. He, 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 he did all kinds of things to buy everybody's love. So why would they get angry at him suddenly? If anything, they should be loving him now. And and so why does it say with regard to Yosef Ratzon Tzadik, and with regard to uh, to uh, to uh, Mordechai it says Nase. So the Marsha says, Yosef was already in prison. What did he want? He wanted to get out. So in order for Hashem to give him what he wanted, namely to get out, what did Hashem do? He made Pharaoh get angry at his servants. Mordechai had no desires. He didn't want. What did Mordechai want now? Um, wanted to get his wife back. <laughs> Mordechai didn't want to save the Jewish people. There was no problem yet. There was no issue. So that we can't say Lassus Rotzen. There was no Rotzen. There was no will, the Marsha says. There was a miracle. This is going to be a miracle. Later on, Mordechai is going to want something and want to save the Jewish people. But at this point, it was just a miracle. It was a miracle that Hashem encoded the very set of circumstances that later would bring about the salvation. So that's why the language of the Gemara is very precise. And it says, Nes Latzadik, not the Rotzen Latzadik. Okay, so now Mordechai has no desire to be stuck in the middle of the situation. Hashem makes a miracle, and the miracle is that these servants get so angry at their master that they begin to plot his assassination. And Mordechai just happens to be sitting there. So Omanoi, who is the answer of this riddle? The second riddle was, Avodim a who God makes... And a servant's angry at their master in order to make a miracle for the tzaddik. Who am I? The Gemara says, Manoi. And who is that tzaddik? Who am I? Mordechai. Dechsev, like it says, Vayivoda hadover Mordechai. Mordechai became aware of this. And because of that, Mordechai relays the information to Esther. Esther relays the information to Achashverosh. The information is corroborated. And when it's corroborated, Achashverosh's life is saved. So now, the Gemara is going to try to explain to us how did this work exactly? Were these people so stupid to speak out loud in front of Mordechai? Why would they discuss the plot of what they were planning to do in front of Mordechai? So the Mar- even a different language, you be careful. You never know who's listening. So the Gemara says, Amar Rabbi Yechanan. Rabbi Yechanan said, Big son v'seresh shnei tarsim hoyu. Big son and seresh were from Tarsis. Tarsis with a Samach. So here's what we're... Tarsis, not the same thing. It probably is Tarsis. And we believe, although we're not 100% certain, that this would be later on known as Carthage. This is the fabled city of Carthage. The city of Carthage was near the country of Tunis. It was in Tunis. Tunis was a very powerful country. And I believe that the Carthaginian capital was an island off of Tunis. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the interesting thing. These Tarsium Hoyu, Tursi, they were speaking Tursic, or Tursic language. So Rashi says, Lashon Tursic, Tursi, Shem Makim. It's the name of a place. So everybody asks, what is going on over here? The name of a place. <laughs> what do you mean? Obviously, it's the name of a place. It says Tarsium. So the Hassam Sefer says something amazing. 
Chassam Sefer says that if it was a language that was spoken, in those days there were languages, there were cultures, and these were widely spoken languages. So a person was speaking a foreign language, but you didn't know who else was speaking your language. So they would have been very careful. But here he says this was a very, very lo location-specific language. Only the indigenous citizens of that place spoke this language. Other people didn't speak this language, so they knew who was from Tarsus not. And they looked around, and all of a sudden, this Jew. He doesn't speak. He doesn't know our language. Nobody else knows our language. So which language is this? So first of all, I don't know with certainty, and I don't think anybody knows. But from my research, in Carthage, around this time, the primary language spoken was called Puric, if I'm pronouncing that right. And Puric is a kind of Phoenician permutation, but it has very, very different grammar, very loose grammar altogether, and a dialect that's so different that a Phoenician would not understand Puric. Now the Phoenici, Phoenicians, of course, is present-day Lebanon. That was once upon a time Phoenicia. And the Phoenicians were very powerful people, and they spread really throughout the Iberian Peninsula. They were around all, all, all around the Mediterranean. There were people who were speaking Phoenician. Traders. Traders. But their, but their language exported itself. Mm. The language. But the interesting thing is that Puric was only spoken in Carthage. It was Carthage-specific. The Carthaginians, they spoke this dialect that was not understood by other people. So it, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that it's reasonable to say that the language spoken in the story was Puric. And this was spoken by two Carthaginians, if that's how you say it. And they were plotting against Akashverosh. But these were his loyal servants. These were the people who he had guarding his inner sanctum. The most loyal servants he had, the ones he trusted his life with. And they were planning to kill him. And Mordechai understood this. Why did Mordechai understand this? How did he understand the language if nobody spoke it? And the answer is, the Gemara says that Mordechai, the Gemara tells us, in Seches Menachas on page 65, was a member of the Sanhedrin. <coughs> and to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be fluent in all spoken languages, which included 70 languages. And in fact, the Gemara goes on to say that Mordechai was the linguist amongst them. And that's why the nom de gur for Mordechai was Balshan. Balshan is a nickname that's used for, for Mordechai. Baalashon. Baalashon, the master of tongue. So Mordechai was a master linguist. And even though Puric was a very, very location-specific dialect and a very difficult language, and if you weren't Carthaginian or Tarsician, you wouldn't understand it, Mordechai, being a master linguist as the head of the Sanhedrin, he did understand it. And they never dreamed that he would know what they're talking about. See how Hashem arranges things? And they said, the Eimrim, Be'yem Shabbat, Zu, ever since the day this one came, they're talking about Esther. We never get a night's sleep since she came. Why? Because Achashverosh was very busy with Esther. And he would uh, afterwards want, want, want to do one thing or the other thing, and he was thirsty and he wanted drinks. <laughs> he was busy. And these guys, they got frustrated. They said, Enough already. Enough with this, uh, with this, uh, this uh, new queen who's robbed us of every, every, every ounce of sleep. And so they decided to assassinate Achashverosh because they weren't getting a good night's sleep. It's like it's a lunacy. 
Who, who plays with their life? Not get a good night's sleep, quit, run away. This is Meshuggah. You're going to go kill the king because you're going to get a good night's sleep? I don't think you could actually quit a job in those days. There were no unions. I understand. <laughs> I understand. But the notion of going to commit an assassination of the most powerful man in the world because you were frustrated about your job is, shall we say, at the very least, paranormal. So they had no idea that Mordechai is listening to every single word that they're saying. They had no idea. And because they had no idea, so they, Mordechai hears them saying, Boy, Come, let's put poison in his bowl of water. The next time we bring him water, we poison it. And we do this, put the poison, let him die. And they were unafraid of Mordechai hearing because nobody, nobody understands them. Rashi says, We didn't see any sleep. Because Ahasuerus was so in love with Esther, she was very sexually active. And therefore, this made him very thirsty. So he was driving these guys nuts all night. He was ringing the bells. Bring me a drink. Bring me a seltzer. Bring me this. Bring me alka seltzer. I don't know. The whole night he was asking them for things. So they said, let's, let's poison him. So he says back, Sarah says back to Big Son, he says, well, this is not so simple, he says. I, we can't just poison the guy, he says. Vahaloi, he says, oh, what's well, sorry, what the Gemara says, Mordechai is one of the worlds who sat in the chamber of hewn stone, which is the name of the high court, the location of the high court, the Besamekdosh. Mordechai knew 70 languages, I told you, the master, the master of Sanhedrin. Amaloi, so Sarah says back to Big Son, he says, My watch is not your watch. And this is understood, not as in a different, a different uh, time, but a different place. Rashi says, You are responsible for one, taking care of one aspect of the king's life. I'm responsible for something else here. So what are you going to do? How are we going to do this? And it seems the issue was that if you came with poison in hand, you get caught with poison in your hand. If, 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 if you put the poison in earlier, then it was chances of people finding it out. Things could get discovered. So what would have to happen is he would be walking with the water that's already been vetted and already the dog already drank from it and we know that everything's fine. The water's, you know, it's gone through security and he's walking with the door and somebody dumps some poison in. You know, like the Russians in the... Uh, in London, the bar in England. <laughs> After they're ready, the drink is served, you dump a Mickey and then you dump the poison and that's it. You think it was uh, Putin's idea? They're doing this in time already of... Uh, <laughs> the Megillah doing this already. Except they, 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 they got caught before. So the Gemara says... And that's... That's the meaning of what says... Oh, sorry. So the Gemara says... I'll do both jobs. I'll do your job and my job. And you be around. And you have, you have the stuff. And just as I'm about to walk in, just dump it in quickly. Colorless, odorless, tasteless, we're free. And that's what, what says, they investigated, and they found, what did they find? What did they find? The evidence? 
He says, They went to see where Seresh is supposed to be, and Taka wasn't there. He wasn't there. Then the secret police went into high alert, and they looked for Seresh. When they found Seresh, they found the contraband on him. And so, that was the end of Big Son of Seresh. But in the meantime, Mordechai was the hero, because Mordechai picked up on this. And because Mordechai picked up on this, he was able to save the life of Achashverosh, which gets recorded. And afterwards, from this, as a result of this, in the end, we have a situation where the Jewish people are going to be saved as Achashverosh turns everything inside out. And that's the story of Esther's double life and how Mordechai was thrust into a position which ended up helping him prevent an assassination. Now, there is another record of this story, and I want to share it with you, and with this we'll conclude. The Yalkut Shimoni, which is, you know, genre of like Medrash, although it's compiled at a later time. The Yalkut Shimoni tells the story a little bit differently. He tells the story that we read earlier. We read the story earlier. We learned that Esther <coughs> said to Ahasuerus, why don't you do what all good kings did? And he said, what was that? He said they had a good Jewish advisor. He said, oh, like who? He said, what do you mean? Daniel. Vashti's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you know any good Jews? He says, funny you should say that. I happen to know this very pious and, 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 and wonderful individual. Full integrity. You can trust him absolutely. His name is Mordechai. Achashverosh said, okay. It's good advice, Esther. And he promoted Mordechai to be in the inner sanctum so he could always reach out and get advice. In the meantime, Big Son and Seresh lost their job because they were in the inside. So the Yaakov Shimoni says, Big Son and Seresh got very angry, and they said, this looks terrible. This Jew replaced us. They said, Jews will not replace us. We have to solve this situation. So they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to assassinate the king. And we'll say, look what happens when you left it in the hands of the Jew. Look what happens. When we were there, we protected the king. We don't know who killed the king. We don't know how this happened. But when the Jew was there, on the Jew's watch. Now imagine the anti-Semitism that was engendered. And here, the Yaakov says, they were planning to put a little poisonous python into his glass. So when Ahasuerus would get the glass, the python would jump out and bite him, and that's it. He'd be finished. And this, the, 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 the version of the Yaakov it really helps us appreciate why Big Son of Seresh deserved to die. Because they were actually real anti-Semites. And they wanted to create a pogrom against the Jewish people. That's what they wanted. They wanted to get Mordechai out of his position. Say, look what happens when you put Jews in positions. So what happened? Turnabout is fair play. They wanted to be, remove Mordechai. They wanted to bring, harm the Jewish people. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, leave it to me. And he enraged them, got them angry. They made this plot. And in the end, they were caught and Mordechai. And ultimately, the Jewish people are saved. That type of trickery is not new. That type of trickery was also uh, used by Yosef when he planted the, the goods so in a in very, Binyam, very in, different in, way. In, uh, in, in Benjamin's baggage. In so. a very different way. Listen, the, the idea of, of politics and intrigue and espionage and double lives, nothing here is new. No. <laughs> nothing. Here's the point. The Megillah is actually reads like a very, very dramatic and fascinating novel. But the miracle is that everything happens to happen in just the right time, in just the right way. It's all about the way things happen. 
that makes this miraculous. It's only when you put the pieces together that the miracle begins to emerge, as we talked about many times, that the Megillah is all about Hashem's miracles that are camouflaged in the garb of nature. And with this, we shall conclude. Thank you very much.